0: Today's scripture is from Revelation, chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to the great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. From God, having the glory of God, its radiance most like a most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the name, twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. The city lies foursquare, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his, his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width, width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also the angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. First there was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city had no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And the gates will never shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, God. Would you pray with me again? Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful that you're God who speaks. We pray that as we think and consider your word now, as we pause in the midst of our ordinary lives to pay attention to you, God, would you pay attention to us? We pray that that we might understand your word more clearly, that we might see Jesus as more beautiful and believable. Because of this time together, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we are. Wrapping up this uh, sort of whistle-stop tour of the Book of Revelation that we have been in, as we've uh, we've been thinking about Advent. Advent is the season of preparation for Christmas. Advent is a word that means uh, arrival or coming, and we've been saying that that Advent is both about remembering the first Advent of Christ, but also. Longing for his second advent. And so we've been looking at the book of Revelation as our guide because Revelation tells us, uh, reveals to us, is what the word Revelation means, what's really going on. Uh, what 's really true and, and revelation in many ways is is not uh, is not a book about the future uh, most of it 's really, really revealing what 's going on beneath the surface of human history now. But as we turn to this last section of revelation we we do get a glimpse of The future, the time when God will finally complete uh, his work, that the work of redemption will be applied to the ends of the earth and all things will be made new. And uh, when I think about this passage, I I think a little bit about I don't know what you do when you just have a, a, a few moments or. Uh, something like that that you want to just blow off some steam what do you what are the stories what are the things that you gravitate towards um, I love watching uh, HGTV okay <laughs> my guilty pleasure or, or home improvement projects on YouTube or whatever it is I love um, I love watching these programs where Somebody's been working on this dilapidated old house and they get some help from friends or professionals come and, and uh, help them fix their house up and renovate it and make it new again. My favorite episodes are the ones where they transform somebody's house really fast because I never transform anything quickly. <laughs> And uh, I love to build things and work on home improvement projects, but they seem to never be finished. They take months even for the smallest thing. Even when I think I'm done, there's still a never-ending to-do list. But sometimes you see one of these shows on HGTV where maybe there's a, you know, a family, a husband and wife, maybe the wife's out of town for a few days. And the uh, husband has arranged everything so in like three days they completely gut and remodel the kitchen. And a spouse comes back and walks into the house unsuspecting and walks in and says, oh my gosh! Everything has been made new. I love that because that's what I want so badly to happen. Um, That, I think, is the experience that's been pictured for us in the last chapters of Revelation. All things have been made new. We are home. It is finished. It is perfect. What we're seeing in Revelation 21, 22 is, in every sense, the final scene in the story of Scripture. Revelation is revealing to us what's true about our present existence. And we get this glimpse of the future because it primes us for the sort of life that we live now in light of God's future. And what this is showing us is, is really the end game of. Advent, the end game of Christmas, the end game of human existence, is the renewal of all things. the The key um, verse in this, we're really going to be thinking about the first seven verses of this chapter that Roz read for us. Um, but really, the key is in verse five, where um, it says, "This He who is seated on the throne said." Behold, I am making all things new. And then, almost for emphasis, it says, Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. What this is making clear to us is this, that God's plan for all of creation is the renewal of all things. And that's really significant. Because what that means is that God doesn't do... um, A home improvement project, the way I often think that some houses in San Luis Obispo need to have a home improvement project, which is begin with a wrecking ball, right? That kitchen that hasn't been updated since the 60s, you got to take it all away and start over. God is making all things new. He's not knocking everything down and starting over again. He's not starting from scratch, He is renewing. Everything. We could put it like this God doesn't say, I am making all new things. He says, I am making all things new. And the point is this the end game of Advent and Christmas is that God is going to transform, He's going to make all things new. Everything will be renewed. And this is stunning if you think about the implications of this for. God's people and for the world, because what that means ultimately, in an ultimate sense, is that Jesus does not come at Christmas merely to die on the cross. Rather, God's purpose in the advent of Christ, the coming of Christ, the purpose of Christmas is met or really answered as God makes all things new at the end of human history. And the cross of Christ is simply means toward that end. That's the end game of Christmas. You know, at Christmas we sing, joy to the world. And of course, in the fourth stanza of that song we sing, he comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. As far as the curse is found, every square inch of God's good creation that has been twisted and tainted by sin will be made new. It will be glorious and exhaustive in its scope. What God is telling us is that he is renewing everything so that we will recognize it, but it will be like nothing we have ever imagined. It will be uh, far more than we could ask or imagine. What Revelation 21 is revealing to us is what it will look like when all things have been made new. God's people will live in God's place as we were intended to live, experiencing the fullness of God's goodness and mercy and grace. And this passage shows us that it will be seen, we will experience the renewal of all things in three areas, in our home, in our condition, and in our relationship. So that's what I want to explore with you this morning. Firstly, let's look at the renewal of our home, a renewed home in verses 1 through 3. Like I mentioned, I always find these home improvement shows, home renovation shows, incredible uh, because we watch people um, whose homes often begin in, in disrepair. Maybe there was a, a you know, there's a, a facade of a building, and you can see its former glory, and it's brought back to its original purpose, and it's even better than it was created to be. It's a place of safety, but of also of beauty, a place to live and love and to make memories. A renewal of our home is, an, is a narrative that is pointed to and echoed throughout the story of Scripture. This is first really expressed Um, all the way back at the beginning of the Bible. Uh, If you have been at Trinity over the last several months, you probably remember that in the fall, late late summer, early fall, we uh, explored the book of Genesis together, the early chapters of the book of Genesis, which is the origin story of the human race that gives us our meaning and purpose. And we saw there that Adam and Eve, having rebelled against God, were expelled from the Garden of Eden and they were forbidden access to the tree of life. And so the human race lives its life east of Eden um, in a place where there is toil and hard work. This expulsion is in a very real sense, an expulsion from heaven on earth, which was the original home of the human race. We tend to think of heaven as this place. I remember when my kids were younger, one of my sons asking me, Dad, where is heaven? And we, we think of heaven as, you know, it's, it's beyond another planet or something like that. But in a, in a biblical sense, the Bible always talks about heaven as the place that God dwells. And so God makes his presence known in the Garden of Eden and the human race literally lives in heaven on earth. But because of their rebellion, Adam and Eve were sent away from God's presence. And ever since that day, we have been longing for home. But God doesn't abandon his people. And God doesn't leave us a too kind of heartache and homelessness and so throughout the scriptures, we are continually given hints and reminders that a day is coming when we will be home again. And you see this throughout the story of the Bible. You see this with Jacob's ladder where, where the angels are coming down uh, to earth. We see this in the tabernacle, in the temple in the Old Testament where God makes his dwelling place, he makes his presence manifest in the midst of the people of God. You see this, of course, in the Christmas story, right? In the, in the incarnation of Christ where uh, you know, we, we call Jesus Emmanuel, God with us. God makes his presence known in our midst. But what we see finally here in Revelation is what that will look like in a final and in an ultimate sense. Listen again to what John says in verses 1 through 3. God himself will be with them as their God. What we see is that God is not planning to whisk his people away into some other reality, but rather heaven comes down to earth because God comes to dwell in the midst of God's people. And The the imagery, I mean, there's so much here in in this chapter that we're hardly scratching the surface this morning, but notice a couple of the things that this tells us about a renewed home. The first thing that I've been talking about is that um, we will live in 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 a renewed home, and it will be in a renewed home because we will live in the presence of God. It is home because God is here. God will one day dwell with us, and we will be with him in the perfect place that he has designed for us. But the second thing that I think is important for us to get our heads around as best we can is that our home is a physical reality. Sometimes we think of heaven, you know, we think of the cartoons of angels on clouds and harps. And, uh, but we think in a, in a more general sense about heaven being this sort of disembodied spiritual existence, disembodied somewhere. But that's not at all what the Bible pictures. In, in fact, it's not so much that we go to heaven as much as what the Bible is saying is that heaven comes down to earth. Our home will not be any less physical. If anything, you could, you could say that the new heavens and the new earth will be more physical. Uh, it, it will be the fullness of God's original intent for us in creation. And we see that in the description in, in verse 1, where it says that the first heaven, the first earth, have passed away, and the sea will be no more. Now, I know that many of us might read that and, and think that doesn't it sounds like God is actually whisked, <laughs> getting rid of our home. And uh, we might read that and, you know, hearts begin to ache because we love the beauty of this place that we live on the central coast. You know, there are, there are surfers in the room who are going, What do you mean the sea will be no more? Um, I like the ocean. I love the grass and the soil and the earthiness. What this passage is telling us is not that there will be no water, that there will be nothing physical what it's saying is that there will be no chaos. There will be no more curse. If you remember again back to Genesis 1, it says, In the beginning the earth was without form and void, and darkness hovered over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was fluttering like a mama bird over the face of the waters. And consistently, in both a literal and also a metaphorical sense throughout the Bible, the sea is a symbol of chaos. Uh, you, you could think about the book of Jonah, where the sea is this chaotic mess, and Jonah hurls himself into the sea in order to run from the presence of God. Um, throughout the Bible, the, the, throughout the Old Testament, really, the, the people of Israel were terrified of the sea. And so the sea is this metaphor in the in the Scriptures for the chaos of life, the curse of of the earth, uh, of the unknown. And what this passage is pointing us to is not that, that we will live some sort of immaterial spiritual reality, but what, what it's pointing us towards is the reality that a day is coming when we will be home and the chaos and the curse of life in this world will be no more. Um, you can think about it like this. When when my family when we go outside we experience the curse. I, uh, I I've had this um, probably too many this experience too many times in the last year where I, I'll go surfing and then the next day I'll be brushing my hair and go ah I got sunburn on my head. I see some of you who are smarter than I wear hats when you go out, right? Why? Because we love the outdoors, but we hails with our Scandinavian complexions uh, have to put on sunscreen when we go outside, right? Otherwise, we experience the curse of cancer. What this passage is telling us is not that you will never enjoy the sunshine and the new creation. It's that you will experience the goodness of sunshine without the curse of cancer. <laughs> That's wonderful. This thing that we have longed for will one day be a reality. C.S. Lewis put it somewhat famously in these words He says, If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. We can say it like this, are you ever home and yet you're still homesick? If you still feel out of place, then this world must not be as it is now, our ultimate true home. This is the promise of Jesus' advent among us, the promise that one day we will live in a renewed home. So that's the first thing in this passage, but the second thing, as God uh, gives us this glimpse of our renewed future, second thing we see in verses 4 and 5 is a renewed condition. Verse 4, he, meaning God, will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. When God makes all things new, we will live with him in a renewed world with a renewed spiritual condition. This is stunning, and to explain what, what this is pointing us to, I have to warn you that there's going to be a moment here in just a minute where we're going to have to get a little bit technical, but I think you can hang with me for, for a couple minutes, right? Um, the the, the question that sets it up is to think about this. Have, Have you ever thought what it would be like to be unable to sin? Have you ever thought about what it would be like to be you, but to not be able to disobey God? I know that as modern people, we have this sort of like deep down idea that, the highest good is unfettered liberty. And so it's hard for us in, a, in, in some ways to conceive of something being good if there are limits placed on us. And yet I think if you think about it for a minute, you can see just what a sigh of relief it would be to be able to say, uh, there's a day coming when I will be unable to sin. Uh, what would it be like to not hurt or to not be able to hurt others? What would it be like to not sin or be sinned against, to have no more tears of sadness, to never be lonely again, to never be frustrated, to never have that feeling that the biggest obstacle in my own life is actually me? Do you know that, that sense? Um, that's what Revelation 21 is pointing us to. When Adam and Eve, our first parents, rebelled against God and the entire human race fell into sin, death, disease, destruction, division enter into our world, which lead to despair and depression. And the greatest thing that we see in this passage, this is the technical part, is that a day is coming when you will no longer be capable, if you are in Christ, of contributing to the hurt of this world. And so theologians talk about the fourfold state of humanity. And what that means is this. State one, in the Garden of Eden, in the innocence of the human race, the human race was unable, uh, was, was able to sin. In the Garden of Eden, humanity was able to sin. State two, after the fall, after Adam and Eve rebel against God, the human race was not able to not sin. After we have sinned against God, we become incapable of not sinning. Thirdly, as a result of the redemptive work of Christ, we have been set free from the power of sin. Paul talks about this in Galatians 5 and in Romans 6. And what that means is that because of the work of Christ, the power of sin has been broken, and so we are capable of not sinning. But in the new heavens and the new earth, we will reach the fourth state of humanity where human beings will no longer be able to sin. Now the question, again, is does that sound to you like good news? I remember a few years ago, I heard Tim Keller say something that stuck with me. Uh, Tim Keller is a pastor in New York who died earlier this year. But he said, um, "This has stuck with me for a while." He said, "For some of you, the big problem in your life is just that you're too young." <laughs> and like, huh? That's interesting. What does that mean? And I've thought about that for a long time. And, and and do you know what he was saying? He was a pastor in New York City. He had this church that was full of single, young, bright, ambitious people who moved from all parts of the country to New York to pursue these, you know, ambitious careers in you know the arts or in finance or tech, tech or whatever it is. And he said, um, I think I think what he was saying was that if you are maybe in your twenties or maybe you're in your early thirties and you run into struggles in your life, you think that the problem is just that you haven't lived long enough. When you run into problems at work, you think the problem with my job is just that I haven't earned, put in enough time yet. I haven't worked my way up the ladder yet. The problem that I'm facing in my career is that I have this boss and he does these crazy things. She does these things that I disagree with. One day I'll be in charge. But the problem is you get into your late 30s or early 40s and then you find yourself realizing you're the boss (laughs) and you still have these, the problems haven't gone away. Right? Or we think, uh, the problem in my life is that I haven't figured out how to do relationships yet. I'm still developing my potential. I, I, I still, nobody has recognized me for my talent yet. I'm still trying to figure these things out, but there's always this idea that with a little more time, things will obviously get better. Or we think m- maybe, you know, maybe when I'm the one in the corner office, maybe when I'm the one making the decisions, then things will be better, and then a day comes along, and it starts to sink in, you're realizing you're the one making the decisions. What if the biggest obstacle in your life is you? What if the biggest obstacle in my life is me? I, I remember this moment, maybe three or four years ago, I was having uh, <laughs> had this moment of reflection where I realized nobody had referred to me as that young pastor in a while. <laughs> And I was sitting, having a beer with this young pastor, and he was complaining about the senior pastor he was working under. And he was, all of these things were a problem in his life, and it's all the fault of this other person. I said, you know what's worse than that? It's that someday you're going to be the senior pastor, and then you're going to realize all of those problems are your fault. And I don't think he understood. When I said that, I was like, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. I just said a little bit too much about myself has it ever occurred to you yet that the biggest obstacle you face, that I face, is actually me? And here's where this starts to sound like really good news. If you are in Christ, this means that you have a future where you will no longer be able to sin. Can you imagine the freedom that comes with that lack of ability? To not have to be overly careful or cautious, or second-guessing everything you do, where you're wondering, are my motives pure in what I'm doing right now, or are other people second-guessing my motives, the inability to sin will be glorious. Here's the good news. That is your future. And this process has already started it's what we call sanctification. It's a work of God's free grace where he's making us more like Christ by enabling us to die to sin and to live to righteousness. A renewed condition. But thirdly and finally, in verses 6 and 7, we see a renewed relationship. Listen again to what John writes. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Verses 6 and 7, we see that the renewed perfection of our renewed home will be met with a relational permanence. The making of all things new is done by the one who is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who has really no starting place and no ending point. There's an illustration here that goes back to Isaiah, fulfilled in Christ. We come to the source of life without money, and we find that he quenches all of our thirsts and provides us with all that we need Ultimately, salvation from sin and death. This was accomplished through Christ Jesus' death on the cross and in his resurrection. But the point of emphasis here is this. He does all of this in order to adopt us as his own children, as his own sons. Um, I know it says sons and in a con- context and with the English language that we read this in. We go, well, what about... You know the daughters this isn't a, this isn't about gender elsewhere in this very chapter, uh, the Bible talks about the people of God as the bride of Christ, and so there's a sense in which the people of God are female. There's another sense in which the people of God are male, we are bride we're the bride we're we're sons to figure out how that works <laughs> itself out. But the point is that adoption as sons refers to a legal standing, the legal standing of the firstborn son in ancient cultures. So we can say that we are adopted as children of God, but, but what's being said is not that you are adopted in a generic sense as a, as a child of God, but you, God treats each of us as if we were his firstborn meaning you receive as an adopted son of God the double portion, the double inheritance of the firstborn son. This is telling us how our relationship with God has changed. God is our Father. Jesus is our Savior and friend. The Spirit and the empowering Sanctifier comforts us. This change in relationship means that our relationship with God and one another has shifted. No more does fear, doubt, insecurity dominate our relationships with God or one another. We are loved and we are loving. We are cherished and we cherish others. We are healed and we are healers. We are supported and we are supporters. We are encouraged and we encourage others. So that's why he says we are conquerors. We are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's what this passage is telling us. So, So the question that I want you to think about as we wrap up is this. Why is John telling us this? If we, we've said that revelation is about something that is being made clear to us, something that is being revealed to us, why does he tell us now the future holds for God's people? Or we could even ask the question like this. Standing here on the last day of one year looking forward into a new year How does this passage affect 2024 for you? Let me read again verse 7. The one who conquers will have this as his heritage. I will be his God and he will be my son. He will be my son, my legal heir. And I said this a minute ago, but Maybe another way to think about the language of sons is this. God is saying, God is not saying, you will be my son as opposed to you will be my daughter. Son is not in opposition to daughter. It's son as opposed to orphan. You will be my son as opposed to you will be an orphan. What's the difference between living as a son and living as an orphan? Well, the difference is that a son, an adopted heir, wakes up every morning and knows that he or she is loved. I remember when my when my kids were younger, I would tell my kids, like, I love you. I still tell my kids that I love them. But we went through this phase where I, w- I would say to my kids, I love you. And they would go, I know. <laughs> and I remember thinking at first, like, I want some sort of reciprocity here. I love you, don't you get it? But they're like, I know. And it occurred to me that it's a really beautiful thing that my kids have never considered the possibility that their dad doesn't love them. They are so secure that they would just say, Dad, you tell us that all the time. Sons know that there will be food on the table and a roof over their head. That everything will be okay. That whatever the day holds, that they will finish the day and their father will still love them. Why would it be any other other way? Orphans, on the other hand, wake up every morning and have no idea what's going to happen to them that day. We all know that a child who grows up, not knowing that mom and dad uh, love him or her, will grow up with certain insecurities And that will work itself out in any number of ways. The same thing is true for the children of God. Being a son, an adopted heir of God, doesn't mean that Christians are perfect. Of course not. A son will have issues. But sons, daughters cope with the ups and downs of life because at the end of the day, they know that everything is going to be okay. Dad loves them. All who are thirsty, all who long for relief, all who long for all things to be made new are welcomed. Come to Jesus. He is making all things new. Would you pray with me? Jesus, would you help us to hear your, your voice, this word of invitation that we who... Live in a world that is so often dark and yet live with this longing for home. You call to us. You hold out this promise that a day will come when you will make all things new. I pray this morning that whether we have heard this promise, responded to this invitation, whether we're Hearing these words for the hundredth time, whether we've heard them, and and, and something is, is clicking maybe for the first time this morning, would you help us to respond? Look to you in faith, Jesus, that we might know what it is like to live as the children of the living God. And even as we live now in the the midst of the realities of our lives, would you help us to live as sons, as daughters, as those who know uh, that our Father is on the throne, that he loves us, that he's working all things for his glory and our good. We might live with confidence now, Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen.